Hello and welcome back to the Stinging Fly podcast. My name is Ian Mullaney. I'm the online editor here at the Stinging Fly. Um, I'm joined today by Evelyn Conlon. Uh, for listeners not familiar with Evelyn's work, Evelyn is a novelist and short story writer born in Monaghan and now living in Dublin. Her first short story collection, My Head is Opening, was published in 1987 and her most recent novel, Not the Same Sky, was published here in 2015. She is a member of Aestana and a regular commentator on arts and culture in Ireland. Today, Evelyn is reading her story, The Park, published in a collection of new and selected stories entitled Telling. Attentive listeners may spot some thematic relevance between this story and news headlines at the moment. Um, Evelyn, would you like to read The Park for us? Okay, thanks. Thanks, Evelyn. Um, the Park... Apparently, my blood pressure is the same as everyone else's. That is, just below boiling point. The fat, which during the last few years had wrapped itself like a tight hug around my arse, has begun to disappear. Where does fat go when it falls off people? Are there chunks of it floating around the air in the exact spot where people have got thin? And where is the exact spot? And do people breathe it in? And does it damage their lungs? My nerves are no worse than they ever were, and I sleep well. These things surprise me, but they don't surprise Bridget. Nothing surprises her. That's why I love her, and her eyes are grey. Bridget was going through a bad time, doing her best to get through each day without making an ass of herself. Her boyfriend, she would have called him lover because she has confidence like that, was away. Again. But this time there was an eeriness about his absence, an insistence that seemed to be trying to tell her something. She was finding it difficult to put her days in, days based on promises, particularly since, as she had begun to admit to herself, the promises had never actually been put into words and said. She had a notch up from a middling job in the corporation and the sort of car that a woman like her can afford in a country which, 11 years later, was to miss the point completely and interview the staple diet of men on the night that Mary Robinson was elected president. She was driving home in this car wondering, and trying not to, if there would be a letter from him when she got there. More of those flags had appeared. This area had been coming down with flags for the past week. New ones sprouted every evening, as if there had been multiple births all day long when people who had work were at it. A local festival, she presumed, a very spready local festival by the looks of it. There was a long letter from him that said nothing but wished she was there, which was something. She bit the inside of her lip, wondering again until it bled. She walked around her flat in a disarrayed fashion, picking things up and putting them down somewhere else. Sheena rang her and asked her if they wanted to go out to dinner tonight. It's for McCartan McElwain. He's emigrating next week, lucky devil, she said. There's no we, only me. Ah, is Jeremy away again? Well, come yourself. Because something is better than nothing, she went. 
She took the poor route bus into town, the quickest journey, the one that makes no effort to avoid the desolate patches. She tried not to hear the tightly packed sounds of poverty. Not tonight. Your perm's still in. It would need to be. I only got it done a month next Thursday. The restroom was perfect. It could dismiss the outside world in a matter of seconds. It had the right consistency, ordinary enough to be relaxing, slightly exotic, so Bridget could be interested, a little conservative, so she could count herself exotic in contrast. This hanging between realities made her dizzy with satisfaction. The others all came together. There was Jacinta, a long-term student who always had money from somewhere and who was more used to spending it in pubs than in restaurants. Sheena, an indifferent clerk in the Norwich Union Insurance Corporation, a dedicated northerner whose mind was sharp as razors. McCartan, dreamy and absent always, but even more so tonight because he was already drinking fast drinks in Manhattan. And Pori Copeland, whose father, a Connemara Gaelgore, had married a Basque woman who sometimes spoke Spanish with an overlay of longing. They fussed and hugged and sat down and ordered wine and made plenty of noise. They were of the runaway generation, Bridget too. There were no family heirlooms, even cheap ones, in their sitting rooms because none of them had been forgiven, not yet anyway. Perhaps later they would be, when the death of a parent might force reconciliations on the one left behind. As teenagers, they had bitten and sniggered at everything. And when they got to be 20, they didn't have to swallow their words because things were better then. Bridget liked staring at people. She was mesmerised by their hair, their faces, their clothes. She could see sloppy sewing through an overcoat. Looking at these people, what could she see? Jacinta never had to seek first attention because she had carrot magenta hair. Since the 60s, when it was first allowed that red could be matched with pink or other reds or any colour, Jacinta had started wearing shocking blood lipstick. She wore it still, even though the time had not yet come around again when thinking women could paint themselves. Pori Copeland was far too good-looking. There should be a law against anyone having such a perfect face and mouth. No one ever noticed what he was wearing. McCartan McElwain had a startled face, a crooked nose and hair so straight it looked wet. Sheena was so puny she nearly had no face at all. Therefore, her voice always came as, as a surprise, a big, deep thing that had its way perfectly curved around difficult ideas. She had fed her intelligence well. Bridget would have a good night, after all. Sheena was concerned about the impending visit of the Pope to Ireland. It will knock us back years, she said. So that's what all the flags were for. Bridget wondered to herself where the people had got them. Had they had them all the time in boxes, away with the Christmas decorations, waiting in case the Pope ever did come to Ireland? Or was there a factory somewhere spewing them out of machines at a rate of knots? 
Or did the women sew them up at night in their individual homes and pretend that they had had them all along? Look how much damage he, particularly of all the popes, has done. In how many years? How long has he been pope now? Jacinta remembered. Exactly. Because she was picked out of a crowd on the night of a Reclaim the Night march in Dublin by a TV personality and asked if she would come on his programme and say how she could defend not letting men go on the march in support of the women's demand that they should be able to walk safely down the streets at any time, day or night, without men. Well, that's not the way the TV personality put it. She said, yes, she would go. When she got there, her knees were knocking together with fright and she had forgotten that television was in colour, so her clothes were all wrong. How could she have thought that, her and her shocking blood lipstick? But she was saved because the first Polish Pope ever had just been chosen and today tonight had spent all evening scouring Dublin for a Polish priest. By the time they got one, all the Polish priests were paralytic on vodka. So there he was, his English not the best in the first place, slurring his way through his interview. In comparison to him, Jacinta sounded like a professional. Sheena was so concerned at the assumption that we all wanted the Pope here, she said that something should be done about it. We should do something, she said. And that led to a long discussion about what they would do, what they couldn't do, what they could do and what they dared to do. And so by the end of the meal, they had decided to paint slogans so that people would know there was some opposition in the country. They believed that to be important. Nothing too drastic like fuck the Pope, because that could be taken up the wrong way twice. Nothing too obscure, because people would just knit their eyebrows and not understand. Something simple like, no priest state here. They would do it on the road from Maynooth to Dublin. Maynooth, McCartan said dreamily, turning it on his tongue as a child would repeat a word to itself, knowing that it meant something but not knowing what. Maynooth, where priests are made. Bridget was given the job of driving down and up to Maynooth once or twice over the next few days to calculate how many special branch cars were cruising the route. Branch cars, she said. How will I know them? You'll feel them on the back of your neck, Sheena said. During the week, Bridget dreamt that she was a bird flying into people's kitchens, into canteens, onto building sites, switching the bloody radios off as they built up cosy pictures of the wonderful preparations for the wonderful man, the way a radio voice can. The night came, the night before he was to come. Bridget felt nervous in an alert sort of way pleased that they were doing at least some little thing. She had plenty of petrol, oil and water in the car. She had cleaned it while she was at it. The tins of paint were in the boot. She was clean herself, spruced up in a pair of jeans that had zips where no zips were needed. A royal blue light jumper, a white shirt collar peeping up around the neck. They had decided to leave her flat after midnight. 
the later they painted the slogans, the more chance they would remain unnoticed until morning, when people would see them on their way to work and be outraged or smile gleefully with relief. It was a long evening. At 12 o'clock or thereabouts, Sheena and McCartan arrived. By half past 12, it was obvious that Jacinta and Porig had had second thoughts and were not in favour of pursuing a wildcat decision taken in a restaurant when there had been plenty of wine drunk, all because McCartan was emigrating. Oh yes, he's leaving the place, but brave enough to do one last thing for the old sod before he abandoned it altogether. Easy for him. And as for Sheena, she'd think better of it when she remembered her job. And as for Bridget, she'd never. So McCartan, Sheena and Bridget set out and drove through the early autumn night. Sometimes they checked to see if Bridget's calculation of the branch cars were correct. Every eight minutes, every five minutes. No, that's not one. Oh, it is. It is. I can feel it. But mostly they behaved as if they were out on a mid-afternoon Sunday drive. The first slogan was the hardest. They reached the spot that Bridget had picked out before they had decided who would do it. They shouted at each other and jumped around in their seats as if a flea had bitten them. But they calmed down and decided that Sheena and McCartan would do the first ones in Rota while Bridget sat at the wheel and started the car up again when they got to the second last E. If they were getting on well, she could have a go when they got to a quieter spot. OK, here goes. No priest state here. In luminous white paint, lucid in the dark, as if it had been there for all time. They had to tear themselves away. They could have stood around for hours chatting, taking the odd, long, admiring look at it, remarking on how well the letters were done, smelling the paint, watching the moon, watching it. The second one, a mile from Manus, lacked originality. It didn't look as pleasing, but maybe that was because of the bad background wall, which didn't show the letters up terribly well. The straight stretch of characterless road took away from it too. Still, it was done. And a third. By now the rhythm was flawless. They had the paint and brush and painters out and in again in one minute. They were concentrating so hard on the fourth, enjoying themselves so much, making the letters flourish more, that they didn't hear the car coming until it had rounded the corner ahead of them. Quick as a flash, Bridget switched on the engine and moved forward. The driver would think he had only imagined that the car had been stopped. McCartan and Sheena jumped across the hedge, scratching their legs on thorns. Sheena got stung by a nettle. They sat in the ditch, listening to their hearts drumming, one long beat in their ears. Bridget drove around the corner, switched off the engine, listened, and when no sound came, she reversed back to the spot. While the two were extricating themselves from the ditch and getting into the car, Bridget, bold as brass, finished off the here. Phew, if that had been our first one, we would have scarpered home. Because of the fright, they turned left at Lucan and took the Strawberry Beds Road 
just as good for commuters in the morning and far safer for this business and more beautiful anyway, they consoled each other with something near love, born from the fear that was rising up in their voices. They looked at the road, its tall trees crowded together in places, gossiping, its houses perched dangerously on the edge of steep hills, leaning over to here. Bridget's mother had walked dogs along this road once when she had worked as a doctor's housekeeper. The dogs were well fed. Had Bridget's mother ever wondered at the beauty? Was she asleep at this moment, having a peculiar dream about the time she worked in Dublin for that doctor? The drive was so pleasant, it was hard to remember that they had stops to make. Did Bridget's car stop at the very places where her mother had taken a rest with the dogs, listened to the river whispering and making music? Who knows? Bridget couldn't quite remember how many they had done on the Beds Road. Five at least. She had got to do two herself. The one that stretched across the road, that's the one she liked best. It was under a thick black tree and the R.E., ran into the roadside, staining the grass as it broke up. It was that grass that you can whistle on if you cup it properly between your hand and your lips. They drove homewards, talking louder now, laughing a lot at nothing, relief beginning to take them over. They drove up Oxmantown Road, down the North Circular, left at Fibsborough, getting further away, getting nearer a door they could close behind them. And for some reason, they couldn't let it go, this nighttime artistry. So they stopped to do one last one opposite the gates of Glasnevin Cemetery. Funny, that was the one that stayed the longest the next day. A guard the car passed them as they drove off. Shit, we nearly got caught, McCartan said. Nearly pregnant, never did anyone any harm, Sheena said. When they got to Bridget's flat, they were ravenous. McCartan and Sheena checked the car for stray splashes of paint, then washed the brushes. Bridget made fried egg, tomato and mushrooms on toast. McCartan stayed the night. In the morning, they switched stations on the radio, One news bulletin mentioned that some vandals had daubed a protest slogan against the Pope's visit. A slogan. Only one. Is that so? Bridget said sleepily as she fiddled with the tuner. The Pope this, the Pope that and the Pope the other, she muttered and switched it off. By the time they got up, the country was in full swing. Children basked and dressed already if they were travelling far to the park. Cars washed, mines battened down, bus tickets secured and picnics packed. People who lived in the city were out buying their plastic chairs. Hawkers were converging on the park. The last stones of the park's inconvenient walls were being tipped into the dump. They had to go to make room for all the cars, the guards, the priests, the mothers, the bankers, a few radicals who had decided to make a fortune selling periscopes, county councillors, fathers, poets and musicians who had finally tuned themselves to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Those who thought otherwise were simply 
invisible for the day. By nine o'clock in the morning, no amount of floodlights could have picked them out. It took a certain kind of flash violence to make so many disappear. There are bruises left. There are sounds of strangling. But there you go, choking sounds. Well, that's only to be expected. It couldn't be avoided. Bridget's doorbell rang. She went to it slowly because she was feeling the effects of erasure and the small gurgling of anger in the pit of her stomach was not enough antidote. She opened the door to her smiling brother and his careful girlfriend, her cousins and their friends. They had come early so as to get a good view and to buy some of those chairs if there were any left and they would park their cars here if she didn't mind. We thought we'd get our tea here, as I'm sure there's no place open, her brother said, moving into the hallway. Bridget felt as if they would crush her if she didn't step aside. She backed into the kitchen. The last one closed the door behind him. They were standing now around Jermyn's packed luggage. She hated them doing that. That was all she had of him. As long as his belongings were packed in boxes here, here in her room, there was hope. If these Pope visitors hung around his things for long, he might never come back. Look at that big ignorant mouth leaning his dirty arse on Jermyn's stereo. Now that she had woken a little, flashes of anger were skittering through her, shaking her up and strengthening her legs. She said... I'm not making tea for anyone on their way to see the Pope. They all laughed. I'm not, she said. They laughed again. No, really, she said, as the laugh petered out. Her brother said, you were always great crack. I was just saying that recently. We miss your crack in Mullingar. We could be doing with it, especially on a Monday morning. Right, who wants tea? Who wants coffee? Bridget went to the door, opened it and said, I'm serious. No one on their way to the park is welcome here. The whole country is at your disposal today. So why are you bothering me? I'll have enough trouble all day keeping that creep out of my mind without having to feed his followers on their way. Enough said. I won't insult you. Just get your tea and your posters and your rosary beads somewhere else. They did leave. Well, what else could they do? Their hearts winced at the only blow struck against a believer that day. How well it had to be them. Bridget couldn't believe they had actually gone. The triumph left no taste of ashes in her mouth. She said, whoopee, and went back to bed with McCartan, where she curled her bare body as close to his as possible, merging her chest into his so that their hearts might beat together. He wasn't Jermud, but he was here. A few hours later, they heard a cheer go up from the street. Her neighbours were all hanging out upstairs windows, waving yellow and white flags at a speck in the sky that must be your man's helicopter. Bridget lifted the nearest black garment to hand, which happened to be a nightdress, attached it firmly to her window and got back into bed again, trying to shut out the noises of belligerent piety. At half past eleven, she and McCartan decided to go to Newgrange, the most pagan place they could think of. 
They drove alone along roads that wove through North County Dublin townlands, roads that skirted the Pope's intended route to Drogheda, meeting the odd branch car, the occupants of which pinned eyes on them. What could those two people be doing? Where could they possibly be going? Wasn't Mass on in the park by now? The Pope had already told the people in icy sharp tones what they must not do and nor must you and you must not and also. It would take the people years to recover from the things being said in such a way on such a day. As a million and more genuflected, creaking their knees within a quarter of a second of each other, McCartan put his feet up on the dashboard and sighed the way some of us do when making love has satisfied us beyond what we think we deserve. The Pope raised the host. The people bowed their heads. Bridget wondered if that was our period starting now. The people filed in straight lines to get communion, some shuffling, some stamping, as they edged their way confidently towards heaven. Bridget shivered in a flash of cold. People had started opening their flasks in the park by the time McCartan and Bridget reached the gate, closed due to the Pope's visit. They said nothing, just caught each other's hands tight and started looking for an opening in the hedge. They climbed through a slit in the ditch and jumped onto the hard ground. McCartan felt as if his hip bones had been pushed up to his ribs with the impact. The people in the park sang and swayed. He's got the whole world in his hands. Eleven years later, when some of the poison was leaving, a few people sang, she's got the whole world in her hands, to Mary Robinson as she drove through the park gates. They giggled low down, knowing when they'd heard it last. McCartan and Bridget reached the stone wall. Bridget caught McCartan's face and stuck her tongue down his throat. Across the city they had just left, odd souls longed for the comfort of a warm body, the big crook of an arm to bury their faces in, a chest to lie on, a mouth to kiss, anything to take their minds off it. Bridget and McCartan went into town that night to have a drink. It was the worst thing they could have done for their hearts because they met too many people who had gone to the park. People they had expected more from were surprised at. And there was a strange sound, or was it a smell, lurking in the shadows. The streets were full of rubbish, as if an army had trampled through today and left a wash after it. If that was so, Bridget and McCartan were swimming precariously on the edge of it, being watched by the backs of the people on deck. They met Porrig and Jacinta, who were now furious with themselves for not having gone painting. They had spent the day sitting on a bed together, but they didn't get into it because Porrig was gay, much to Jacinta's disappointment, not always, but on this day. They waved homemade flags at the screen and shouted, up the pole, up the pole. They all had a drink. The four of them whispered together, hoping to draw some consolation from each other but it didn't feel enough. At the airport, Sheena, Bridget, Porg and Jacinta hung around while McCartan's parents went through the emotions. 
McCartan's mother was furious with grief. She would wait six months or more before sending him postcards of the West, of pubs in the West, of musical instruments under blue skies, of valleys pinpointed by intimate rivers and lakes in the West. She would wait. Bridget couldn't kiss him properly. His parents didn't turn their heads for long enough. In the toilet, Sheena and Bridget decided to go out together painting once more. Why? There was no need. It must have been the airport, the sense of people fleeing. It must have been. They didn't tell Porig or Jacinta. It was too serious. They drove to the park in the early darkness and painted. If men got pregnant, contraception and abortion would be sacraments. On the monument built for the Pope's visit. There were lots of letters. Bridget did 50 of them. Hers looked sudden and fluid. Sheena's seven were non-runny and perfect. In the paper the next day, you could tell there had been two people. The worst part of it all was doing what Sheena said they had to do afterwards. Go to the nearest pub, pee on their hands and then wash them under the tap. The worst, but she was right. It got rid of the paint from around their fingernails. Sheena then told Bridget that she too was emigrating. Bridget said, oh God, no missing her like death already. Bridget got caught painting a harmless slogan seven years later, one year after the passing of the Statute of Limitations. It may be a harmless slogan, Your Honour, but the vandalism of the Papal Cross in the park wasn't. The judge's eyes widened into white. Six months, he said. I got caught. I had a standby job taking in the lottery ticket money in my local shop any time the lottery reached £700,000 or more. A customer left half the receipt one night. The winning numbers were marked on it. Not knowing, I should have, which receipt was needed to claim a prize, I chanced my arm and brought the docket in. By an odd coincidence, £100 went missing from the till the same week. Not me. I wouldn't have had the nerve. A hundred pounds may not be a lot of money, Your Honour, but attempting to procure fraudulently £860,292 is. Six months, he said. We're getting out next week and Jermid is throwing a party for us. Thank you very much, Evan, for reading that. It was uh, very interesting to hear. Um, I guess the first question always is, Can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this story and what was going on at the time when you chose to write it? Yeah, gosh, it is it is very interesting to read it now because it is a while since I've read it. And to remember that uh, things that I have described there wouldn't happen now. I mean, for instance, even the thing about the amount of money that's that's available in the the big prize in the lottery, and that's that's not as much now. But there are lots of things there. Gosh, it's history. So it was directly after the Pope had come to Ireland in 1979. And um, I was with other people uh, utterly furious about the uh, 
the walking over any notion of dissent. It is a fascinating thing that it is sort of quite different this time. Uh, and it's also, I mean, I'm careful about, I do believe in religious freedom. I'm not religious, but I do believe in people's right to have religion. What I don't believe in is the notion that some religion has more of a say over what our lives should live or how our lives should be lived. And at that time, that was Ireland. So the fury uh, generated by him coming, which was an extraordinarily depressing 1979, uh, uh, autumn 1979, extraordinarily depressing when you saw that there was no possibility of there being a voice saying, hang on a minute here, uh, particularly as a woman, but not even just for women's rights, but for civil rights. Because, I mean, remember, contraception and divorce, which, of course, were illegal at the time, as was abortion, all those are civil rights. They're civil in the sense that they belong to the republic. So individually, you as a, a Catholic or a religious person of whatever faith they are, you are, uh, has a right to make your own moral decisions. But the, 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 but the republic uh, had to guarantee us those civil rights. So what I would consider, I would consider that it was an awful day for civil rights and the notion of them within this country. Um, so the story is written out of that. Really, it's actually written out of anger and it is written about uh, a thing that did take place, which was <coughs> that there were slogans painted from Maynooth to Dublin. And there was a number of years later, a slogan uh, uh, painted on the paper cross. I obviously put the two together as if the space uh, between them wasn't, you know, so long. And also... I do also think that my reference in the story to people emigrating, you know, I, I do think that there were people who left Ireland then because they just thought, you know what, you couldn't listen to any of this anymore. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like that's... And that's all changed now. I wonder <laughs> sometimes. Oh, <laughs> believe me, <laughs> it's changed. How is it different? There just isn't as much of it. That's really it. I mean, you know, I can actually say I'm not even really certain what day the Pope is coming. Uh, I can tell you the last time I would have known what day he was coming. So, and we have, our laws have changed. And I mean, you see, you may not think that's a huge thing, but it is an extraordinary thing that that has changed. I mean, I lived in a country where... I sold contraceptives at the top of Grafton Street and had my name taken by guards uh, uh, because I believed it was my civic duty to do so. Younger people now wouldn't even think, of course they wouldn't, of course they wouldn't think of that. And they shouldn't think of it. I don't want them to be thinking about it, but I'm saying that was my life uh, as a younger person. Uh, so yes, the place has changed. Yeah. And so when when you go to try and put some of these feelings around the visit into a story, where did you start? Was it just out of pure anger or did you feel like you had 
it took you a while to get where you were going in terms of the story. Ah, no, no, no. It, it would have taken me a while. Yeah, yeah. You see, anger can anger can make you decide that you're going to write some one thing, but that doesn't make it into a short story. You then have to deal, you have to process that anger and you have to, and also you have to figure out whose voice you're going to say it in. And for me, I mean, quite often, you know, it's getting the voice. That's the really hard thing. I mean, recently I've been writing a story. Well, no, it's it's written now um, about Violet Gibson, who was the Irish woman who tried to shoot Mussolini. And I, I, I tried the voice in about five, six ways. And then I once I found it, which is it's written as a letter to and it's put in a bottle. And it's so the one reader who gets that letter is reading the story. That fixed it for me. Again, with that one, you know, I wanted there to be different kinds of people in it because I wanted to sort of represent the people that I knew at the time, the young people, the people of my age, the people of of my view of the time, whom I knew, uh, and to put them all together. And so that was a difficult enough one. So no, 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 it would have taken some time, quite a while, quite a while before it would have become a short story. Hmm. But I was obviously determined that I was going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is one of the, the most striking things about the story, I think, in a way, is is the voice and particularly the first person at the start and at the end. And I was kind of wondering, how did you arrive at that sort of book ending? And because it's, mm. it's such an ambiguous kind of voice. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> it's an ambiguous voice. Uh, listen, that's part of, you know, that's part of the work. That's part of discarding things and then deciding that that's the one. I think that I obviously decided in the end that that was the voice that worked best. I think there had to be a voice in it who was going to be left in Ireland. Um, I think there had to be a voice that voice also had to be it had to be certain about it had to be certain about certain things and I think that, that uh, okay that's not making sense and uh, no it's not making sense it's just that I know that I know when that voice was right it wouldn't have done if I had used any of the other characters although I was kind of tempted to do it from Martin McElwain's point of view uh, but then I sort of thought, no, I wanted him to be dreamy and to be going. Uh, whereas I have a feeling that the person who stayed there is going to survive better. I, ha I had that feeling. Yeah. And I wonder as well about the fact that, that that person, the narrator, is outside of the events that are happening. It's obviously quite an intimate view of what's happening, but there is still a an observational mm. element. Well, you see, the, 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 I mean, there are people in the world like that. And that that person is. There are people in the world like that who 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 as they're while they're doing something are also seeing themselves doing it. And I think that that person, that narrator is totally conscious of all the mates. She's totally conscious of where they are. She's totally conscious of describing them even. Uh, she's also aware of the fact that she loves them, but that and she but she's aware of their faults. Um, I think she's probably totally aware of her own faults as well. But uh, she is that stand back person. 
And in a way, I think the only way you could write a story like that was with a narrator like that, because you are, in fact, essentially, I, as the author, I'm making a judgment, you know, which you can't, you know, it's a dicey enough thing to do. Uh, but I am, I'm making the judgment and therefore I'm giving the narrator the right to make the judgment so that 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 the narrator has to be that sort of person. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, I think there's a really interesting balance between humour and seriousness throughout the story. And I think obviously the, the subject at hand is extremely serious, but the people mm. in the story do treat it a little bit offhand. Mm. Like with the special branch cards, you'll know it when you feel in, hairs in the back of your mm. neck. And I think there's, a, how important to you is that to have that kind of balance between yeah. the, the tone? Totally. It's totally important. It's totally important because I think that that is the way that we behave in the world. Um, uh, some people are more serious than others and, and don't ever really get any of the humour. But I mean, it would be a dull day when you'd never hear somebody uh, taking the piss. Uh, but I do think that there are some personalities more than others who will allow themselves to see the humour whatever number of times a day. But uh, in this case, well, that's the only thing that they could do and they were going to have to do that. Um, because clearly they do feel awful. Well, certainly the narrator feels awful and feels closed in and feels as if uh, the people who with the dissenting voice have been swallowed up and whatever. But nevertheless, there's going to be a bit of humour. Uh, and they even have a bit of humour, even when they're whispering in the pub, when they feel as if they have been sort of walked over. Um, actually, there's not so much humour then because it's it's sort of a bit depressing then. Um, uh but yeah, I, and I, well, I mean, apparently they tell me that I do that in my work quite a bit. And I think I do it without noticing a lot of the time too. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm interested in it because it, to me, it's one of the key questions of um, how we talk about politics in general. Is some people can handle a bit of humour in their mm. politics mm. a bit better than other people, perhaps. Mm. And I do admire people who can do it. Mm. Um and can have that kind of lighthearted approach to to serious topics. Mm. It makes things so much more approachable for, I think, for a serious topic. Well, also because people get terribly put off by, I mean, politics of any kind. Uh, if you've been caught on a corner by somebody who has no humour, well, you're going to run away from it eventually. It's like being at a bad party. You can't hack it all the time. The other thing is, is you just you just end up thinking, you know, this is so bad. The world is so bad. I mean, I better just get off the edge of it now. I mean, to me, if you can't laugh at the incongruity of it all as well, uh, even though you're then going to get down and do something serious about it, but you still have to be able to have a sense of humour at it because how do you survive otherwise? I get one of the things... Um about this story, I guess at this point it is a, I'm going to say a historical artefact, but that's kind of what it is. Um, it's a document of a particular time and place. And um, I guess I was wondering, thinking about this story in terms of the present, how how do you think people now, say younger people, might 
understand that story when they read it or, mm. or if they hear it? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I haven't got a clue. And I couldn't even, I couldn't begin to think. And, and I suppose in a way I shouldn't begin to think about it because I didn't even think about what readers then would have thought about it. I knew that there would have been people who would have been very upset by the story. So therefore what I had to do was is just sort of say, well, that doesn't matter whether they are or they aren't. Uh, but you're very right, it's a historical artefact. You know, I've just realised, I haven't read it, you see, for so long. That's a really interesting thing. You could get into Newgrange at the time, there was a hedge around it, so you could actually climb into Newgrange. It is an actual fact that Newgrange was closed on the day of the Pope. I mean, everything was closed. Um, so I wouldn't really have a clue. You know, I'm sure there would be people um, thinking, what the hell is that about? But then again, I wouldn't know, you know, I wouldn't know what effect it would have. Uh, in the way that when reviewers look at your work, you know, sometimes you read a review. I don't always read reviews, and but I have read some and I would be sometimes sort of think, God, imagine that. That's amazing. So, I mean, really, when you've written a thing, that's it. It's gone. And the reader finishes it, as they say. So... It's not, it really isn't up to me to even try to imagine what they think. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm wondering. But I wouldn't mind hearing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering about what, say, a story like that can uh, tell people, I guess, of, of the history that they might mm. perhaps not know. Like, like, like these tiny things, like you can get into Newgrange through a gap in the, in the hedge. Like to someone who maybe only sees Newgrange as this big tourist attraction mm. that would seem kind of crazy, but, or even I think one of the particularly interesting points in the story is where you kind of look forward to, uh, Mary Robinson. Mm. And I'm wondering, how did you fit those in? Did they come later or at what point did? Yeah, they came later. Uh, they came later. Well, actually then maybe the story was only, uh, they must've come later. I'm not, I, I can't actually quite remember that, but they would have come later. But that is true that people, I heard people on the night, Mary Robinson was singing, singing, she's got the whole world in her hand. And I know I was thinking, oh, where did I last hear that? Yeah, I think even those details, they, they tell you so much about, yeah. about the history that, you know, people have lived through. And the other thing is, is, and you see, it wouldn't happen now. But I mean, it was amazing. I remember being so furious on the night she was elected. Uh, that 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 people didn't interview women and say, you know, that they didn't see that this was all part of a thing that had happened in which women had got more confidence. Uh, they'd fought battles like really serious. And as I say, civil rights battles, it's not just you see, feminism of that time was directly related to every single thing that was happening within society that affects both men and women. And they had won battles and, and that had given them confidence. And then that had given them a bit more confidence and that had given them more. And I mean, you know, I always think of this really terrific story about the day that Mary Robinson on the election, <laughs> there was a man from Monaghan uh, who had always been at the polling booth for about 30 years or something. And he said that at about one o'clock, he knew that she was going to win. And the reason he knew was that and he named the various people, you know, Mrs. Kelly, uh, Joe and Minnie, who always came together, what time they came and the McCafferty's, what time they came and who came, whatever, whatever. But that that election, uh, Minnie Kelly and Mrs. Larma came together. So he had noticed a difference in the 
behaviour of people. So he'd sort of thought, this is really... I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was fascinating. This man had noticed it. So, uh, and he had also noticed that what it was about was, it was about women coming together to go and do the vote. So that was very, very disappointing when the normal staple, um, some, some very bright men and they had some very interesting things to say, but that nobody would have said, oh, we'd better sort of balance it. Yeah. So. I know it is. It does still happen, I suppose. It does still and happen it, sometimes. Yeah, it does still happen. Um, it, it's actually it's something that comes up in the story as well, where um, the take back the night uh, oh, yeah. march and, and not having men on the march. And, and I think that's that's really interesting because it's something that still goes on today as well yeah. in terms of those marches yeah. still happen, those yeah. or f- at least for the same yeah. reason marches still happen. And, and it's so it, to me, it just you see, I understand perfectly good men wanting to support those marches. But the point of the march is that it's supposed to be about the right of the woman to actually walk without the notion of male protection, you know, to be able to walk on one's own. And that was a very, very, very um, divisive discussion then. And I know that it still is. I know that it still is. Although I do know that men have learned more now about why it is that they should stand back on, on, on those particular ones. But then that would bring us into a whole discussion for hours long about what has changed and what has remained the same and what has actually got worse although some things have got better. So, you know, where would we be there? But uh, but it is true. I mean, I, for instance, did go on television to try and explain um, why men shouldn't be allowed on the Reclaim the Night March. Not why they shouldn't be allowed, but why we didn't think that they should be there. And it was a difficult, pretty difficult issue to try and explain. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, that question of, of what has changed and what isn't. I mean, I know it's it's a very broad question mm-hmm. and a very far-reaching one, but I'm, I'm interested maybe in in terms of fiction writing and, and writing in general, perhaps, that could someone, do you feel like someone could write a story like this today? Oh, I think they could. And I'll tell you what's more, they could definitely write a story like, well, it wouldn't obviously be the same one, but they could... Now I think there is more of an openness to a story coming through with some politics in it. I think that a lot of the work that I did at a certain point, it was shut down. There's no doubt about that. It was shut. Um, I remember hearing a writer uh, at a short story conference in Ireland uh, saying that there was no angry literature written in Ireland. There was no angry literature written by his friends but there was other literature that was not uh, given the light of day. And I think that has changed in Ireland for the better. Um, Like I would really say that that has changed for the better. So I would think that, yes, definitely, you could write a story like that in Ireland today with a way more ease and with a way more certainty that, that it would be published somewhere and that it, that there could be an open and a free discussion about it instead of somebody sort of saying, oh, no, 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 I'd never saw that story, no. Mm. Yeah, I think I was reading just the other day um, some journalism stuff from the from the 80s and 
it was kind of mentioned that it felt during the 80s that some of the civil liberties and the progress that had been made over, say, since the, since the 50s probably, um, were being rolled back upon. And I was wondering, did that feel, does that feel accurate to you? For the 80s, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things, and it's a separate issue, but of course everything is all rolled in together. One of the reasons I think that was happening was because of Section 30 in RTE, which was the which was about not interviewing anybody in Sinn Féin. So the minute you start censorship, you see, what you actually do is, is you allow it in other places. Because human beings being human beings, when people start looking over their shoulders because they have to check about one form of censorship, they will then automatically, or the, the people who are more scared than other people will automatically look over their shoulders for other things as well. And that's what happened, I think, uh, during that time. One form of censorship breeds another. We can see it now. We can see that if you keep, uh, if you keep denigrating uh, uh, journalism, I'm talking about proper journalism, uh, journalism that has checked its facts, which is what journalism is. When, if you denigrate that more and more and more, it, it doesn't take very long for it to slide into something else. Yeah, I guess um, it's kind of hard to miss some of the, the parallels, I suppose, in terms of the um, proximity between the Pope's visit and the referendum mm. uh, for the Eighth Amendment. Mm. In That's 19- great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I think it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> like, I'm sitting here laughing my head off. All I keep thinking is, is oh, thank God. God, he wasn't coming. I, you know, I'm, I'm a great atheist. Thank God I'm an atheist. Um, it's just so brilliant that he wasn't coming six months ago. I mean, when I heard he was coming, I could keep thinking, oh, good Lord, I hope the amendment happens before that. Uh, uh, so to me, it's sort of harmless. Uh, no, it's not totally harmless. I do think that there's some terribly insulting things for people who have faith. Okay. Um, uh, but there is something that is a little bit more harmless because of the fact that we have achieved the right for women to have an abortion when they need one. Um, I mean, really, yeah. And I mean, I will try and not laugh. I mean, we've been, yes, I mean, that's the point at which I would just actually, you know, it's it's an enjoyable thing that a civil right has has been given to us and the Pope coming doesn't worry us as much because of it. Okay, I think that's about all we have time for today. Uh, thank you very much, Evelyn, for joining us on the podcast. Okay, thank you very much. The Sting Fly podcast will be back next month with Sally Rooney back in the presenter's chair. Um, I hope you'll join us then. I want to say a quick word of thanks to the Arts Council for their continued support. If you enjoy the podcast, please do recommend it to your friends or give us a rating on iTunes. See you next month.